0: Tina Koto no mai, to mai, welcome to Q&A, I'm Jack Tain. Today, the woman who wants to become our youngest MP in 170 years.
1: Unfortunately, some politicians don't have the capability to protect what I know I can protect.
0: Auckland light rail has been a political football, but the Greens want to introduce light rail in some other cities too. And the hidden history of hard labour which helped to build our capital.
2: It's really typical of a lot of the streets in our cities that we walk on every day and we wouldn't know that prisoners had laid the path for us.
0: But we begin this morning with what many analysts think is a looming economic crisis in China. And for a country like New Zealand, forever trying to balance its security and trade relationships with China, there are some ominous signs. (laughs) Chris Hipkin's visit to China was largely praised as a success. It marked New Zealand's first Prime Ministerial meeting with the Chinese President since 2019.
3: It's a friendship because um, we're in regular dialogue and we work together on areas uh, where we have mutual interests.
0: But while Hipkin's visit focused intensely on the trade relationship with China, his Defence Minister has been overseeing a review which considers China in a different light. What country presents the greatest threat to security
3: in our region? um look i think uh, uh, there are a number of threats in our region and and if it comes to other countries there are a number of players who we have to be cognizant of what what country presents the greatest threat well i'm going to say there are there are a number you know we, we see what russia is doing we see how it conducts itself we see what north korea is doing we see what china is doing
0: andrew little says the way china operates is not supportive of international institutions As China has sought to expand its influence in the Pacific, it's come with an expectation of exclusivity in some of its international relationships.
3: I think what is very clear is China has been, for the last 20 years, been stepping up its military size and capability. Um, It is spending 10 times more now than it did uh, 20 years ago.
0: Domestically, China faces some complex challenges. After finally ending its zero-Covid strategy in January, this year, the country's economic recovery has been much slower than many analysts expected. Publicly recorded youth unemployment was more than 21% in June, and after publishing that record figure, China's National Bureau for Statistics said it would no longer release age-specific employment data. Last week, the Evergrande Group, the company at the centre of China's property crisis, filed for bankruptcy protection in the United States. Millions of apartments bought by retail investors are yet to start construction and face an uncertain future. And amidst growing concerns about the state of the Chinese economy, earlier this week, China's central bank unexpectedly cut key interest rates. China analyst Rodney Jones is a principal with Wigram Capital Partners and is with us now live. Kia ora, good morning. Kia ora. I want to talk through a few of the different dynamics at play here. So let's start off with China's
3: property crisis. Yeah. What's happening? It's been building over a long period of time, uh, but the big issue is the developers have all in a process of collapse. Uh, fraud has been endemic. There's a lack of cash in the developers. And we think there's something like £70 million unfinished apartments. And the total value is more than $10 trillion of work in progress. I mean, those are fantastical numbers. Exactly.
0: Are the 70 million apartments going to be finished?
3: They finish about $7 a year, so it would take about 10 years to complete all the projects in the pipeline.
0: What is the likelihood of a total collapse?
3: You know, economic collapse is a cumulative process, and once it gets going, it takes a lot of effort to to stop it Mm. so the risks are really accumulating and one of the issues is the the lack of economic leadership Mm. the lack of leadership from the new team and just the level of uncertainty you observe on on, you know on a day-to-day basis.
0: So in terms of the uh, uh, of the property developers like we mentioned uh, Evergrande Group in the U.S. has applied for bankruptcy protection this week where do you see the property crisis going in the coming months?
3: Well, what you've had is you've had a shock to the household sector. And they're saying, well, what's the point of putting down a deposit 10% and then paying a mortgage maybe up to 50% of the value for a property you'll never get? Mm. And so their risk is too great. Um, So what we've seen is a collapse in or a slump in housing transactions. And because the developers, there's a little Ponzi, you always ask, what's the bezel in a financial crisis? Or, and the bezel in China, and we saw this with the Evergrande's accounts, I mean, they wrote off a trillion RMB. So you think about these numbers, it's like $150 billion, mm. half of New Zealand GDP. Yeah. They wrote off in, in property sales that they had booked as revenue that were fake, wow. in effect.
0: So, so, so what do you think will be the impact in the coming months? Where's this likely to go? Well, we
3: think... if So we've, the, you can't trust the official people to about 5% growth. Mm. That's an official number you can't trust. If you look at the economy now, we think the economy's contracting in this current quarter. So it kind of bounced from COVID, mm. less than people thought, but it did bounce. But since April, May, it's fallen away very, very fast. Right, so, so talk to us that, about that a bit more.
0: China was... Um, relatively late to the game, at least relative to other countries when it came to ending COVID restrictions. Yes. I think it was March of this year when tourist visas began being reissued. So how has the Chinese economy at large performed
3: since those COVID restrictions were lifted? Well, zero COVID worked for them, so they continued to grow through COVID. They grew strongly in 21. Mm. In 22, we think they grew, you know, 2 to 3%, 2%, say. Mm. And so you had... January, February, people were out, they were spending, they were travelling, and then it stopped Right. from March, April onwards. You think the Chinese economy is contracting? Right now, yes, on an underlying
0: basis. And how significant is that, given China's extraordinary growth over the last two or three decades?
3: Oh, well, you know, since 2002, they went into WTO, December 2001. That changed the world. And for 20 years, you know, the, the economy's gone from, like, $1 trillion then to... Eighteen trillion US dollars, mm. so it's lifted the world. A China that that's not growing, that may even be contracting, that's confronting these challenges completely changes the world we live in, particularly in our part of the world. Well, let's talk about that. Let's talk about some of the impacts for for New Zealand. Let's start off um, with
0: the dairy sector. To what extent are dairy exporters from New Zealand dependent on demand
3: in China? Well, we've remained a bulk commodity exporter, and it, you look at those auctions. Chinese demand is important, Mm -hmm. and they're not turning up. So we've done well in terms of exporting over the last few years. That's starting to change.
0: Yeah, Fonterra and Sindley cut their forecast milk price to a $7 midpoint per kilogram of milk solids, down from previous forecast of $8 for a midpoint. Now that change, that $1 change, is going to take an estimated $5 billion in spending out of the New Zealand economy, according to Dairy New Zealand. Do you think that $7 midpoint is an accurate forecast given the political, or given the economic environment in China?
3: It's an okay forecast for now, but the risk is the milk powder price continues to fall. And as deflation takes hold in China, which is what we see, and we see in, you know, that, that they're doing bulk buying of some commodities they can store. So we see bulk buying in, in oil and refined product. We see bulk buying in iron ore. That's not dairy. So we're at the front line. People see New Zealand as the front line of this shock because there'll be no support for dairy. In fact, they're trying to produce their own dairy. We enabled them to do that. We, we, we gave away our cows very cheaply. Um, we transferred our farming systems. And now they're a ferocious competitor with us. Mm. What will be the
0: impact then if that dairy price goes lower than $7 the midpoint?
3: Yeah, well, it's just it's the shock we didn't need at, at, at this time. You know, we've been grappling with the cost of living now with, with higher rates, and now to get a terms of trade shock, to, to get low. which in terms of trade means lower export prices. And the difference, again, is this goes into our rural communities. Mm. This is farmers' paychecks, in effect. How low could it go? You know, when we get these dairy shocks, like in 2014, they tend to go further. And given our outlook for the Chinese economy, I mean, we have to worry about below $6, has been realistic. So something with a five-handle.
0: Are there other sectors in New Zealand that are particularly vulnerable to that kind of shock?
3: Yes, yeah, so, you know, kiwi fruit's doing better. It's a very specific story. So that's the hard thing. China's an $18 trillion economy, so you're mm. always going to have pockets. You're going to have kind of good pockets and bad pockets, mm. even if it's not growing. Mm. So, you know, kiwifruit seems to be holding up. Long-haul tourism, clearly. I mean, what we saw in Japan was when youth unemployment went up, people stopped travelling. Mm. We're seeing the same sorts of patterns in China. So, and then students coming, families hunkering down, saving, not spending on education. Yeah, so this could be significant for New Zealand. This is a change. We get those moments when the world changes. This is, you have to be careful if you call that all the time, but this feels like one of those times. Okay, let's talk about um, the resilience
0: of the Chinese financial system. What do you think that this economic environment, a potential contraction of the Chinese economy, and some of those other factors you've just mentioned are gonna mean for finance companies and banks in China.
3: Okay, so this is not, we've got used to financial crises in our lifetime. So for 70 years, we had no financial crisis. Then we had the Asian financial crisis. We had the global financial crisis. In New Zealand, we had the finance company crisis. This is not like that. So this is not, a, China's a socialist market economy. And the problem is, is that Xi Jinping is making it more socialist and less market. But that means when it comes to the financial crisis, it won't play out as it does in a market economy. So they will manage it, but it will mean people's deposits and savings will be locked up and they won't be able to spend, they won't be able to get their money back. So it won't be a Western-style financial crisis, Mm. but people's savings will be frozen. And so they get more cautious, more risk-averse. And and what will be the difference from a Western-style financial crisis for the global economy? that it won't be like the lemon moment. There's no lemon moment here. But what we'll see is China deflates, it grows smaller. People say, talk about Japan, what happened in Japan. Mm. We've worked a lot on Japan. We don't think there's too many similarities, but there's some, but not enough. But it'll be like Japan in the sense that it drags on for a long time. There'll be deflation, there'll be reduced spending, reduced traveling.
0: And what is the impact of deflation in China, potential deflation on New Zealand?
3: I, it's really profound because, in a sense, if you look at the broad sweep of New Zealand economic history, you know, 19, the collapse of the wool price in the mm. 60s and then the EEC, UK going to the EEC, was a big shock. Mm. The great thing about China is it let us sell agricultural products in an unregulated way, in a, in a free way, and we could go back to what we were good at. Mm. This is a shock to that sector. And and so it's a shock to the model we've built over the last 20 years Mm. where China's really been at the centre of that. Mm. And so we're going to have to reimagine how our economy works, what sectors, what sorts of policies we need.
0: Mm. Uh, You mentioned Lehman Brothers in in 2008. When I think about that crisis, it was a contagion effect or, or, or similar to a contagion effect. That isn't a risky, you don't think?
3: I don't think so. The banks have been retrenching. The Chinese banks have been shrinking yeah. their offshore balance sheets. So we, this is what's going to be happening. we say crisis, what crisis? Yeah. So this will be in some ways worse. It'll be a, a stealth crisis that builds yeah. over time. We showed a clip before of Prime Minister Chris Hopkins in China in June of this year. What did you think of that trip? Yeah, again, we need to reimagine the way we approach China. Um, we look at China through the prism of Wellington. Um, we can't do that. We, and In some ways, this is a deep China crisis, and so we have to understand that. And we can't think that we'll do a trade trip as a supplicant and come back with lots of goodies. Mm. That's not going to work. We need a more mature, complex approach, and also the relationship with China is going to be challenging. I mean, where's the foreign minister? I mean, he disappeared. It's going to be lots of random events like this. Right. What do you mean by a deep China? What we need to really focus and understand what is happening and talk about that and, and start to be more conversant, mm. to, to have an ability to talk about China beyond PM trips and our exports mm. and our leading exporters. How do perceptions of President Xi differ from what you think is the reality of his leadership? The, the reality is he's dictatorial. I mean, we may not want to say in he's a dictator, opinion. in my yes. opinion, mm. or in the way he implements policy. Yeah. That the, the Chinese government is not what it was. China is a, is a system where you have the party and the government coexisting, and he's diminished the role of the government and elevated the role of the party. Mm. And through the party, it's, you know, the party itself, the constitution the dictatorship of the proletariat, is behaving in a dictatorial way that it didn't in the past. Right. And how does that differ from perceptions in New Zealand, do you think? Uh, We just haven't caught up. I mean, this has been, it's understandable, it's been a dramatic change. But the change unfolded over the last decade, Mm. and we've been in denial Mm. uh, 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 about it. That we've seen the repression, we've seen the changes. I mean, you've brought it up on the show, but mostly we haven't engaged with how China's changing. New Zealand is in the process of updating its
0: defense strategy, and the strategy is undoubtedly more hawkish. It calls for an increase in
3: defense spending
0: and capabilities. What do you think of that approach
3: that's important, but events are moving faster and so we have to think so the, the, the anxiety in that we've had in recent months has been why is China buying so much oil? why are they importing so much refined product? you know is a blockade a possible response if the Taiwan election goes mm. poorly and so these are the questions we've been asking in that case then, trade would be disrupted with New Zealand, access to critical supplies, COVID would be a walk in the park compared to a blockade on Taiwan. How, how likely is a blockade on Taiwan? We can't assess the probability or we can say it's non-zero so we can't, there's no way you can you, 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 you can, say can handicap certainty. it you can say with any confidence at mm. all well short of certainty but it's now a possible event and, and Is that something that governments are grappling with that possibility? I think governments are starting to grapple with what, what, a, what does a worst-case scenario look like? Just as we saw with Ukraine and Russia, mm. we have to ask that in our region. A- and what would that mean for
0: New Zealand? This is a hypothetical, it's important to point that out, but what, what would a hypothetical blockade of Taiwan
3: mean for New Zealand oh, well, in the short term? Well, let's say all the shipping to Japan would have to come through the Tasman Sea. Right. I mean, the shipping route. Sixty percent of global trade goes through the South China Sea. Mm. It would. Uh, China has the capability of taking actions that completely remake our world, mm. uh, particularly for New Zealand. It, that, as they said during the COVID crisis, we're the last stop on the global supply chain. Mm. How are we going to cope in that sort of world?
0: Yeah, it, it's interesting in this conversation, which is one that has been continuing for some time now, to consider the the views of you know, prominent New Zealanders, and I think of the likes of Helen Clark and John Key, who. Both, I think, have less of a hawkish approach to, to the modern China. What, what, what do you think of that approach?
3: Oh, China was... It's natural for a politician to remain anchored in their time in power. And the rise of China was the most remarkable event. And so there has to be an element of nostalgia where you, or you think you're still dealing with the same China. Um, that's the, the, the issue. It's completely understandable because we didn't think we would end up here. I was criticised as being too negative and sceptical at time, but I never imagined we'd be at having this discussion right. today. So, so, so you didn't expect that it would get to this point? No, it's gone further and farther and the changes that she has wrought in China went far beyond what we thought was plausible. What can New Zealand do in the short
0: term to, to prepare for what you think could be a worst-case scenario, whether it's a blockade in China in a
3: defence sense or whether it's an economic shock of substantial magnitude? We have to change our mindset. We need to do more work. We can't... You know, we, we have these annual conferences that are kind of rah-rah events rather than critical analysis. We're going to have to engage in some deep thinking and prepare for shocks. And we, We're living through shocks, but we haven't adjusted to what a world with regular shocks looks like. Mm. But is there anything New Zealand can really do? (laughs) (laughs) It's very late. We we have to go deeper. You know, we have to do what we can do. Yeah. Um, And find, work out, stress test, how we're going to cope in particular scenarios.
0: Yeah. Hey, thank you so much for your time. We always appreciate your insights. Rodney Jones, who's a partner at Wigrim Capital. Coming up. 50 years since her tūpūna spearheaded one of the most significant petitions in New Zealand history. This candidate could soon become our youngest MP in 170 years. Hoki maete, we welcome back to Q&A. Light rail in Auckland has become a bit of a political football in recent years. Labour still has plans for an ambitious project, while national plans to scrap light rail altogether. But the Greens have an even more ambitious vision for the role of light rail in New Zealand. As well as Auckland, the party wants light rail in Wellington and Christchurch within the next decade. Transport spokesperson Julianne Gender has just released the party's plans and is with us this morning. Kia ora, good morning. Kia ora. What do you want to achieve with your transport plan?
4: We want cities in New Zealand where people have real choice, they have more ability to get around without having to sit in traffic or create more emissions, and we need a step change in public transport in our major cities to achieve this.
0: Okay, let's talk through the cities one by one Let's start with the specific plans. How does your plan for light rail in Auckland differ from the government's current plan?
4: What we are talking about is actually more achievable and more affordable than what the Labour government is focusing on. We're talking about going back to the original plan of surface light rail that's modern trams on Dominion Road going through um, Mangari and to the airport and we, with the savings achieved by getting that done we can also pay for light rail in wellington and in christchurch
0: right so so you would do it in a staggered approach that's the way you would approach the construction for light rail in each of these cities but but in auckland for example you would focus on having light rail that went from the cbd to Mount, Mount... Roskill, and then you would extend it beyond that.
4: Yep, yep. And, that, and we've seen this delivered in comparable cities overseas very recently, in Sydney, in Canberra, in the Gold Coast, in Australia. Um, you know, They have had a plan that's been able to be rolled out relatively quickly. It's more affordable, it's less disruptive, and ultimately it's better for the climate and better for our cities.
0: A briefing to the government last year found 601 properties that would need to be acquired for the tunneled light rail option in Auckland, would an above-ground option require greater levels of property acquisition?
4: No, not not at all. Um, I mean, Dominion Road was designed with trams in mind. Mm. It is wide enough that we can put modern trams within the existing uh, road reserve, so...
0: So it doesn't require any more.
4: There might be some places where you'd take a little bit around station or around the state, like you know the stabling of the light rail trains. Right. But yeah, it would it would not require more. It, it just seems,
0: uh, and and uh, I mean, it just seems uh, hard to understand how a, a light rail option that goes underground and would feasibly be under you know several meters under properties w- wouldn't require less property acquisition than something that went right through the middle. Uh,
4: I I can't speak to why there's so much property acquisition needed for underground, but I can mm. say that underground definitely is more disruptive. It takes much longer. We can just look to the CRL experience in mm. Auckland city centre that when you have to build stations underground, mm. that requires huge amounts of earthworks. The earthworks need to be moved in and out by trucks. And so, it, and the, the process takes Uh, up to a year and a half to build one station underground. You're essentially excavating a building underground, and that disrupts all the roads in that area.
0: So so your argument is that the above-ground disruption is greater for a tunneled option than for an above-ground option. Yeah,
4: yeah. I mean, it's not like a wastewater tunnel. Uh, If you were just boring a tunnel and you didn't have to get into or out of it, maybe it would be less disruptive. But when it's a a train, Mm. you have to get up and down, you have to have stations, and it ends up being very disruptive.
0: Just, Just to be totally clear, though, have you done any modelling on the property acquisitions for Auckland at this stage?
4: Uh, there was, there was an, I mean, there has been planning done on this since 2016. Mm. The surface light rail options, what we campaigned on and what really should have gone ahead in 2017, 2018 when we first came into mm. government. But, uh, you know, Labour got sidetracked with this proposal for underground and they haven't made much progress. So let's just go back to the original plan. Mm. It's working in other cities. Um, we need to get on with this because... New Zealand has been waiting too long for modern public transport systems.
0: Right, but you can't say with certainty that it would necessarily have require more properties to be acquired or less properties to be acquired than the tunnel option because you haven't got that modelling.
4: I am very confident that it can be delivered within the existing road reserve. That was what was proposed. A lot of work has been done on the surface option. Mm. And, um, and I, I think... There's no question that we could be getting on with this project, starting construction within three years, mm. and have it finished by 2030 in Auckland and Wellington.
0: Yeah, talk to us about your plans in Wellington. The the plans would come at the expense of the extension to the RS tunnel. So why is that?
4: Uh, well, we need better public transport options for people. And, you know, the Climate Commission has made it very clear that mm. in order to achieve our targets by 2030, Uh, We need most of the investment to be in new modes of transport, right? I mean, extending a tunnel isn't really going to solve congestion. It costs billions of dollars. It creates disruption while it's being done. Um, And at the end of it, people don't have great new options for getting around the city. Mm. If we just get on with light rail, we will do more to help the people currently trying to use the roads Mm. in Wellington than by extending the tunnel. It
0: will help with congestion, won't it?
4: No, it won't help with congestion. Um, Even the studies that the government has done on those options shows that the best option was the one that went ahead with light rail first um, and didn't really do anything in terms of big new tunnels for cars. The
0: the original RS tunnels definitely helped with congestion, has it not? Uh,
4: What it does is it moves the bottleneck to somewhere else, right? So, I mean, you can add another lane or two Mm. um, for a few kilometres in the centre of Wellington, but it doesn't stop the fact that the city centre is constrained. There's a limit right. on how many cars fit in there at any one time.
0: What about Christchurch? Why does Christchurch need light rail? Uh,
4: well, Christchurch really needs better public transport. I and mean, Right now, the government is spending much more on public transport in Auckland and Wellington. Wellington's actually a similar size to Christchurch. Christchurch mm. is growing faster. Um, and Christchurch has got great development of protected bike lanes, which has led to a huge uptick in people using bikes to get around, but the public transport's really languished, and if we want to enable more people to be able to get around without a car, we need Mm. to invest in that next level of uh, bus priority across the city, um, improved services, but also they've developed a plan for light Mm. rail now, and we want to move ahead with that. Why not just buses? Why not just lots of buses? Buses are part of the solution, absolutely, but when it comes to city center, they can't move as many people. Light rail can move uh, many times more people in a given corridor with fewer vehicles. You know, you get bus congestion. We already see bus congestion in Auckland and in Wellington. Mm. Um, So you just get to a limit on how many people you can move, but you also can attract much more affordable housing, and that's a key part of the solution as well, is bringing more housing into the existing urban area so we have affordable options for people and they can live close to the places they need to go. But I suppose, like, if you
0: take the success of the Northern Busway in Auckland, for example, which has been hugely successful, I think um, people of of all political parties agree with that, the cost of that busway relative to the cost of light rail... And then a little bit more congestion that comes with the bus might be the the cost of that. But relative to the billions of dollars more that is required to build light rail, I think a lot of people would say that's a good payoff. Um,
4: In Wellington, for example, Mm -hmm. the proposal for bus rapid transit doesn't Cost much less than light rail. Mm. Um, in a constrained corridor, you actually need more land for the buses. Mm. And there's just a limit on physically how many buses you can fit inside the city centre. And like even the northern busway needs yeah. to be upgraded because it's so popular.
0: To what extent will new public transport expenditure be funded out of the National Land Transport Fund?
4: Uh, well, we're proposing um, to do all three lines in the mm. three major cities within the envelope that government has set aside for the tunnelled light rail in Auckland, um, and I don't think most of that was coming from the national. No, Land it's transport not coming Fund. out of the national Land transport. So Fund. we're saying yeah. governments um, set aside this much money. There's some new borrowing needed, mm. but basically within reallocation of what government has currently put aside, and also you know if you look at what Nationals running on, mm. we can deliver our plan within that envelope, but five,
0: less. $5 billion in new funding, in new borrowing.
4: Uh, well, there's going to be new borrowing proposed for anyone's mm. options, right? So, and I think at least if we're borrowing to pay for public transport, we know there's going to be that payoff in terms of uplift of value mm. in the city that can, that can help pay that back. There'll be gains overall in terms of lower costs for people Mm -hmm. getting around, whereas if you're borrowing for new motorways, for example, in the city, which is what both um, national and labor are planning to do, um, there's no reduction in people's transport costs. They still have to own tons of cars. They're still going to be stuck in traffic. Um, And there's not that same value uplift as you get with light rail.
0: Part of your plan is to double the minimum spend on walking and cycling options. So uh, I think the government's planning a a minimum of 500 million, a midpoint of 750 million over the next budget period. National says they will keep uh, the funding more or less where it is right now. Why should motorists be paying, if if that funding comes out of the National Land Transport Fund, why should motorists be paying through their excise um, taxes and through their road user charges? for people to walk and cycle?
4: Because they benefit when people are able to walk and cycle. I mean, they benefit the most. Um, Every time kids are able to walk and cycle or take public transport, that means fewer parents clogging up the roads, dropping Mm. the kids at school. And that does so much more to decongest the roads than a new link somewhere in the roading network. Mm. Um, But also, I mean, currently the direct charges for using the roads don't cover the cost of the roads. Um, there's a huge, you know, 50% of all the traffic is on local roads. 50% of local roads is funded by rates. Mm. Um, we currently have a huge crown in funding injection into motorways. So it's just not true mm. that road user charges and petrol taxes cover the cost of the roads. Walking and cycling imposes way lower costs and brings huge benefits to the communities.
0: Labor promised to have the first stage of light rail from CBD to Mount Roskill, roughly that same... Um, part of track that you'd aim to complete first. Uh, Labor promised to have that done by 2021. (laughs) Uh, To what extent has uh, light rail's progress or lack thereof so far impacted public sentiment around light rail as a concept?
4: I think it is really unfortunate. I mean, the reality is we could have started construction in 2018 and we could have had surface light rail to Mount Roscoe. Who knows, with the COVID disruption, it may not have been done by 2021, but it probably could be wrapping up around now. And I think it shows if people want real progress on public transport, on climate action, we need more Greens and government to make sure it happens.
0: In a philosophical sense, can new roads in New Zealand ever be justified?
4: Well, uh, the Climate Commission and the government's own advice say... No, I mean, definitely not in urban areas. Yes, our existing roading network needs improvement, Mm -hmm. and it needs maintenance, it needs safety. In some places, there's gonna have to be a lot of rebuilding Mm -hmm. because of the damage from increased severe weather events. But when it comes to getting a balanced transport system with rail, with public transport, with coastal shipping, with things that work because they're more affordable, they're better for the climate, they're just more practical, To get that balanced transport system, most of the new investment has to be in those things that we don't have because they've been underinvested in the last few decades.
0: Looking at your costings, you've compared light rail in New Zealand, potential light rail in New Zealand with some of those international projects. You've based your costings and timeframes on things like um, Australia, the Gold Coast. But given the huge cost overruns for the City Rail Link and delays for City Rail, why should New Zealanders have faith that large-scale transport infrastructure projects can be delivered on time and on budget in New Zealand?
4: Well, I mean, I think that we can do this. You know, obviously, there's going to have to be some changes to I achieve think, it. The yeah, infrastructure, I mean, uh, the infrastructure commission is doing a lot of work on this, um, but we allowed for a forty percent contingency. So we mm. looked at the average cost of light rail per kilometer in a number of cities, North America and Australia, we said, let's account for inflation, let's account for you know the New Zealand dollar, and then let's add 40% to be conservative. Mm. So I think we are being conservative. Um, But this is achievable.
0: National released their transport plan. Is there anything that you can see the Greens working with a potential national government on when it comes to transport?
4: Uh, One thing I found interesting is the National Party has been talking about the countries in the world with the best roads. And that's Singapore, Netherlands, Mm. Switzerland, Japan and um, Hong Kong. And... All of those places, their cities, have very little car use relative to New Zealand. They have massive investment in public transport, walking and cycling. And that's the point the Greens have been trying to make. If you want your roads to work well, you need to invest in the alternatives. As, As
0: for their plans, though, is there anything that you like in their plans?
4: Uh, I don't think there's anything realistic or practical congestion in the plans charging. from the National Party. Okay, congestion charging. But if we're going to have congestion charging, we need to invest in better public transport and walking and cycling right now because when you put in the congestion charging, people are going to shift from driving. And so if you don't put that investment in and create those alternatives now, when you bring in congestion charging, mm. you just stop people from traveling or you penalize them financially. So... You know, they've almost got there, they've almost figured it out, but they're still not there yet.
0: No one can give me a straight answer on this, but but, and I'm hoping you, you will be the exception. What does a congestion charge look like in New Zealand? How much would we be paying to enter the densest parts of our biggest cities?
4: Well, there was a select committee inquiry into this, and it Mm. looked at the work done on the congestion question uh, for Auckland specifically. Mm. And I'm trying to remember the exact amount, but I think it was a network charge in the range of a few dollars. Uh, But it it would probably fluctuate depending on demand for the roads. The key thing that National, Labour and ACT don't seem to understand is that when you put the congestion pricing in, you increase demand for public transport, for walking and cycling. So you have to front-load your you investment. you have to pull
0: both of those levers. You yeah. have to front-load the
4: investment in those... You know, ACT and National are talking about using the congestion charge to pay for more roads. It's nonsensical because there's less demand for the roads. One thing is people do... You know, it is the highest-income people who own more cars, who travel more at peak time. And so it is not regressive to do this, but you do need to give people alternatives.
0: Should we scrap excise taxes and introduce a universal road user charge?
4: I think that over time that's something that will have to come in some different approach to Mm. funding the roads, because if we have zero emissions vehicles, then petrol tax isn't gonna work. Um, And it would help to have those more more direct charges, but I don't think National realise that what they're proposing is like huge tolls to drive from somewhere like Auckland to Hamilton. We're talking like $50, $100 per journey. And that's going to change the way people want to get around. And if they don't have those passenger rail services intercity, if we do, if we haven't invested so in that stuff, people d- are going to be in pain. To
0: the road user charges, at, at the moment the uh, there is an exemption in place for EV drivers that, that comes to an end, I think March 31st next year. Do you support ending that exemption?
4: Uh, when we get to 2%, of the fleet, and we're starting to get close to that, I think we'll have to phase it out. Um, But, you know, it is the case that we need some sort of incentive to mm. ensure that we continue bringing in lots of low-emissions vehicles. Mm. And the clean car discount, which the Greens and I worked on in government last term, has been enormously successful mm. at reducing the emissions from it's the be cars be gone under a national command. government. Yeah, yeah, and it's unclear, because <laughs> they say their plan for climate change is but, electrification. Well, they, 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 they say they have an the EV... They,
0: no, they, to be fair, they say they've got an EV policy coming out. Well, um, I mean, So we'll wait with that for with keen interest. Finally, you've got a two-ticks campaign. You're running a two-ticks campaign, which is a bit unusual for the Greens. Um, in an attempt to win Rongletai this year. Have you polled it?
4: It's going really well. Have you polled it? We've done over 10,000 door knocks. Mm. So we have some indication from our conversations on the doors that people are open, you know, and more than half of people are either strongly committed to voting for the Green candidate, Mm. myself, or open to it. So we think we have a real good chance. So have you polled it, though? Uh, Not not with any statistical significance, but other than our own conversations. Okay.
0: Hey, thank you very much for your time. Green MP Julianne Jenter. If you want to contact Q&A, please on my. These are our main platforms. You can email us. You can find us on Twitter or X or on Facebook. Up next, Farm to Top Table. The young activist looking to shake up the record books in October's election.
1: This is for my nana Eileen that became in debt in her student loan to learn her language she once lost. This is for my nanny Ramari that was ashamed as a little girl of her name. This is for my papa Albie that worked in a blue collar all his life to fit in society. This is for my pop that still finds it hard to have confidence to sit on the pie.
0: That was Hana Rafati maipi Maipi-Clark spe- uh, speaking at Parliament on the 50th anniversary of the Māori language petition last year. This week, Te Party Māori confirmed their party list with the 21-year-old at number four. On current polling, that list ranking puts her right on the cusp of entering Parliament, which would make her New Zealand's youngest parliamentarian in 170 years. I visited her on her whānau's whenua in Waikato. Power.
1: It's such a staple here for Huntley. Yeah,
0: for yeah. a place that has produced so much, the community in West Huntley could be forgiven for feeling like they haven't always had their share. No hi akoe, tell me about yourself. Uh, kia ora,
1: matahi o uh, no motu. Re, uh, ko Hana Rafti tōku, nga reutikau mātahi o ki whakeke. Nga haue whāote motu, ingaari ko ako aua kai whakeaka e no hoanaki ki rahui po keka.
0: Ke hi a tau, where are we?
1: Okay, Ko mawa ki mārakoi. So originally this was a corn maze that was run by farmers, and the only thing it did for us was give us hay fever. <laughs> um but over the past three years, we have uh, brought back our whenua, grow kumara potatoes, come kamo, come with a 40,000 yield, all for the community.
0: So what are you going here?
1: Uh, well, this is just salad. <laughs> 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 yeah, yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. <laughs> Salad's important. <laughs> it's from here in Huntley, on the banks of the Waikato, that Hana Rawhiti Maipi Clark hopes to make her way to the halls of parliament. Why do you want to be a politician?
1: I don't think I want to be a politician. I want to be a kaitiaki. A kaitiaki for our reo, a kaitiaki for our whenua, a kaitiaki for our that that's been handed down. And I know that, unfortunately, some politicians don't have the capability to protect what I know I can protect.
0: So why is being a politician the best way to achieve those aspirations, the best way for you to be a kaitiaki?
1: In Kotimanu, Kendrick Lamar says, sit down, be humble. I'm very humble. <laughs> te whakaiti, te whakaiti, te whakaiti. I got so far within my business with mahina that I realized the rest of the barriers could only come from the top down. Sometimes you have to be in it to win it. I'm a fruit salad. I am a fruit salad. I've, my koraua, my great, 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 grandfather is Urimu Katini, uh, from Te taitokero on my mother's side, and he was the first ever Minister of Māori in Parliament. Um, and then going to my Taranaki side, my namesake, Kāna Himara, carried the uh, Māori petition, the language te Reo Māori petition to Parliament. And we've got my grandfather over here, that's him a few Statues. Um, literally hammered a few statues. Yeah. He is an activist, yeah. <laughs> um, and I've been brought up around a lot of activists, but I've recently I've heard this beautiful um, that came from Kete Melbourne's um, film, short film, and they, it said, we are not activists, we are just kaitiaki of the things we have to protect. So I've just been surrounded by all these kaitiaki.
0: What do you say to people who think that being twenty-one is too young for anyone to be a politician.
1: I think the same thing too. <laughs> I think the same thing but for me I've always challenged the status quo. I think that our generation is actually probably a lot more politically aware than we realise through social media. Um, and for me when I see Dalmadi, um lifting heavy weights um, within Parliament, it inspires you to know that your voice has been heard.
0: Hana runs this Kai, this community garden, alongside friends in Farno. They grow their own food, they nurture native seedlings and run a community education programme. So you bring in all the local kids mm-hmm. and basically teach them how to get their hands dirty in a good way. Yeah. Can you talk to us a bit about your interest in... Maramataka and perhaps explain what the concept is?
1: So, Maramataka is the Māori lunar cycle calendar. Um, The Māori lunar cycle calendar is actually a practice and survival tool a lot of indigenous people throughout the world have used uh, for centuries. Um, Our people, my ancestors, used it as a tool to survive through harvesting through growing crops, through fishing, through hunting, through gathering. Um, And not just Māori people, but a lot of people actually follow the environment and its patterns and its traits that it have on you. So this is like our outdoor classroom. There's a certain pattern that the climate has and it has gone completely out of sync. And we use this place to track the data um, that we've had in association with Ministry of Primary Industries. Um, to see how mātauranga Māori can actually be the survival tool alongside Western science.
0: At 21, Hana is already a businesswoman and a published author, but becoming a parliamentarian would be next level, especially when you're standing in Hodaki Waikato. We are in the heart of Waikato. Last I checked, this is pretty solidly in <laughs> <Nanaya> Aramahuta country. <laughs> Do you have a relationship with Nanaya?
1: Yeah, so um, I think she's amazing. Uh, just I've, uh, that's no one question everyone asks me is, as "You're going up against the Foreign Affairs Minister?" And I say, "Yeah, that's my auntie, and she's amazing." But I have to protect what I can protect that I know that her party um, can't protect as much as I can, and. She's not technically Everyone, Willie's pretty much my uncle, Madam David is pretty much my auntie, but um, I think uh, the time has come for a layer, another layer, and another generation to help lift those heavy weights.
0: Did you consider going with Labour?
1: Um, I will be honest, I think a lot of us um, have always been Labour Party supporters, however when that Therapeutics products bill came out, yeah, that's probably the whole reason why I'm standing. I was in fear that products bill could come out around um, my maramataka, around our reo, around our whenua. It puts fear on the people. Even though it has been, t- been removed, we were celebrating like we won on Instagram. That was the post that we we're going around. And I was thinking, we're winning. We are not winning if we are putting our energy into legislations that shouldn't even be there that reflect the Toiunga Suppression Act.
0: Hana Rāwhiti Maipi-Clark is preparing to leave her piece of paradise for an intense campaign and a political environment in which debates over Māori representation, sovereignty and self-determination are as prominent as ever. What does tino rangatiratanga mean to you?
1: They me. I truly feel like after seven generations of struggle and suppression towards Maori people, to indigenous peoples, I don't know if I've actually ever truly experienced colonisation. I live on my Fenwa. I'm able to grow food that came straight from Hawaii. I'm able to learn matauranga and create books. I go to my kura. I also am financially stable through my pakehi. And we're truly living in both worlds. I've always seen that as a privilege. Like, I'm so privileged. Because when you live in a community, like Huntley, or Pōkika, the person next door may not even have bread. But I realized, my grandmother actually told me, that's not a privilege, that's actually your rights. Every rangatahi Māori should have, be able to have access to housing, access to food, access to the real access to um, thriving, mm. so yeah, it's probably my life. In our hearts we've always achieved tēnō rangatiratanga, however it's through mentally it's a, it's a battle, through the T's and C's, <laughs> um, however we just have to Follow our heart, follow our gut, Puku, that we've never ceded towards our te reo
0: What do you think are the biggest priorities in terms of change?
1: My top two would probably be the thing, two things that will never die, which is our environment, our taiao, and our tamariki, our children. You know, elections can come and go, parties can come and go. Uh, Prime Ministers can come and go, but those two things are the two things that will last forever.
0: Te Pāti Māori's slogan in this election is for an Aotearoa ho, for a new Aotearoa. So what does that look like to you?
1: For me, I am Aotearoa ho focused, but Hawaii driven. And what is Hawaii Tafito? Hawaii Tafito is our ancestral lands. Before we became Tangata Whenua, we were Tangata Moana. And I think, you know, obviously in recent events, um, how we actually have to unite as Tangata Moana for our Tangata Pacifica. For me, Aotearoa Hau is. I'm kind of sick of our people being the first to serve the mutu, but the last to eat at the table. And yeah, that needs to stop.
0: Last question then, are you going to win?
1: I'm going to win. I'm going to win. I will... The strategy is to get into Parliament. And we're going to have another interview (laughs) (laughs) after I come October, and we will be there.
0: Rafferty, be Clark. On current polling, presuming Te Party Maori wins an electorate seat, HANA needs them to win a bit more than three percent in the party vote to become an MP. After the break, we often think of forced labor as the history of other countries, but you might be surprised at some of the New Zealand projects built with the graft of prisoners. Gdi, we welcome back. A hidden history beneath our feet. That's how an historian describes a layer of New Zealand's past that has been largely underdocumented. We often think of Australia as the convict nation, but actually prison labour is responsible for many well-known buildings in our capital city. Here's reporter Fina Owen.
5: What do you see when you look at Wellington City there?
2: There's no way I can see the New Zealand landscape the same way that I used to. When I look at the city today, now I see all the unfree public uh, work that was done by prisoners to build modern infrastructure, to build the, the roads and the spaces and the environments we take for granted today.
5: You can't unsee it once you, you've no, it?
2: No, you can't unsee it.
5: The book Blood and Dirt is Jared Davidson's history of forced prison labour in New Zealand and its Pacific realm. On Miramar Peninsula, we're standing on a road built by prisoners.
2: Prisoners built this road in the 1880s, but then it was finished off by Māori prisoners in the 1890s who had been um, ploughing up Pākehā farms in Taranaki.
5: The road stretches round to Scorching Bay and on the hills above are pine trees planted over 120 years ago by prisoners. Good luck. In the next bay, these guys are going for a dive below what used to be Fort Balance.
2: There was this fear that the Russian ships would come in through the harbour in the 1880s and so that's why they needed forts here and prisoners were cheap and plentiful so they sent them out here to build the forts and and the bay and the slipway. Prisoners and their work is really tied up with um, seawalls, harbours but also military fortifications as well. So we're on Kent Terrace. Mm -hmm. Kent Terrace, Cambridge Terrace, all of the roads in this area were built by prisoners who were marched down often in chains from the Terrace Jail or Mount Cook Jail. And then just over here to our right is Basin Reserve, which used to be a swamp until Mm -hmm. prisoners drained it all and turned it into one of New Zealand's most iconic cricket grounds.
3: And that's the result.
2: Just up to the hill there is uh, Wellington College where prisoners levelled all of the college's grounds. A prisoner actually died there as the work was being completed. And round the corner also is Government House where prisoners did so much work in terms of making the bricks that were used uh, for Mount View Mental Asylum, as it was called. And then Adelaide Road itself, such a thoroughfare for Wellingtonians was built by prisoners too. This is the site of Pukeahu and Mount Cook, uh, where the prison was. Up here. A hill used to be about 25 metres taller, and over the 19th century, prisoners hacked away at the clay and reduced the hill. And the clay went into these prison-made bricks, you can see the arrows um, that signify that it's Crown property. So every so often you can come across fingerprints, handprints, so for example here, you can actually see the thumbprints of a prisoner who's made this brick in the 19th century.
5: So who is he? You know, who, who were the prisoners? What were they in for?
2: In the 19th century, the biggest charge by far was drunkenness, so especially for men. Um, but after that, there was these uh, idle and disorderly charges, so so-called vagrants and disorderly people. What,
5: just hanging around town? Hanging around,
2: not having uh, means to support, dr- and it's a shame that we felt like prisoners... Had to be imprisoned before we could rehabilitate them rather than having the, the means and the support for people before they even ended up in jails.
5: But are you imposing contemporary values on, on, on our past?
2: I think we always come at any history and any past with ideas of the present. Things such as oppression and forced labour and, and unfreedom are, are core throughout history and so. Being able to bring that back to the present, I think, is a very important thing that historians should be doing. The prison was here at Pukehahu.
5: From here, in the 19th century, you could look up and see two huge prisons, where the National War Memorial is now, and up on the terrace, there were prisons everywhere. Prison farms and working gangs of prisoners were a common sight in towns, and the elegant results of their toil.
2: Yeah, I mean back in the 1840s this was the shoreline, the water lapped at the shore.
5: Until prisoners made a beach road around the bay, now Lambton Quay.
2: It's really typical of a lot of the streets in our cities that we walk on every day and we wouldn't know that prisoners had laid the path for us.
5: We haven't mentioned women prisoners, they were there, were they in their separate prisons?
2: So there weren't separate prisons for women until 1913 and they were a small part of the prison population but they did all the drudgery, the domestic work, the washing, the sewing, the cleaning. So they, they didn't make, do the brick making. They didn't do the brick making but without their imprisoned work none of the public work of the men would have been possible
5: we have ended up at Parliament, and you're not going to tell me, Jared, that prisoners built Parliament.
2: No, prisoners didn't build Parliament, but within the very marrow of Parliament House are the prison-made bricks from Pukehau. So the clay that was mined on Pukiyahu turned into the bricks that went into the interior of Parliament House. And in a way, that's a metaphor for the history in that there's a marrow of unfreedom right in front of us, holding up structures, holding up... Colonial public works—it's all that unfree labour is hidden right in front of us. Finna Owen
0: reporting there. Hey Akuene, we're back after the break. Ko That is Q&A for this week. Just so you know, next week we will be live with the Prime Minister. From the Q&A team, though, thanks for watching. Hey Teardar Wiki, we will see you next Sunday at 9 a.m. Q&A is public interest journalism funded through New Zealand On Air.